Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Bringing Israel and the diaspora together. Whatever happened to the cause of human rights? Today, how NGOs, or non-governmental organisations, are on mission creep, long straying from their original objectives of doing good via ideological neutrality. It's now big business, journalists hand-in-hands with NGOs, and multi-million pound grants from your government to highly questionable groups, and you're funding it through your tax. I often ask European officials, your term in office, you have distributed 500 million euros to uh, NGOs, of which maybe a quarter has gone to Israeli-Palestinian groups. What have you achieved? I have never had any European official be able to answer that question. But there's never any. What have they achieved? There's no peace. Certainly the Palestinians are no closer to human rights than they were 20 years ago. They're killing and oppressing their own people. There is no progress towards a viable Palestinian economy despite all the aid. So what have they achieved? Thank you for your kind responses to the last two episodes. Not exactly twins, but they did overlap in message and sentiment. Joseph Cohen of Israel Advocacy Movement and Ed Hussein both talked about the struggle to improve Muslim and Jewish relations. Ed from Inside Islam and Joseph from Jewish Zionism. Scroll down to listen and go further too for Ambassador Mark Regev as he leaves the Israeli embassy here in London and the life and career of Colonel Richard Kemp. The UN World Conference Against Racism, known as Durban One, proved a disaster in the making, an ambush, a kidnapping, no less, of human rights. The words of my guest today, Professor Gerald Steinberg, founder of NGO Monitor, which he started in 2001 to end promotion of politically and ideologically motivated anti-Israel agendas by NGOs. That eight-day-long conference two decades ago isn't widely known. It wasn't a conventional war, of course. It wasn't a much-trumpeted peace deal. And it ended just three days before 9-11, which perhaps more visibly changed our world. But Durban 1's effect on the politics of the West has also proved enormous. And it highlights the schism in human rights that now exists. The US and Israel withdrew from the Durban conference over a draft document equating Zionism with racism. The final conference declaration didn't contain the motion. It was voted out by delegates in the days after the US and Israel withdrew. They had three different parallel conferences. The NGO Forum was where the language of the BDS movement was first created and where it began. Among the most active organizations was a group called Human Rights Watch. But they became, because of the obsession of the head of human rights and Roth, Human Rights Watch delegation, along with Amnesty and, and some Palestinian groups, promoted the BDS movement. Former Irish President Mary Robinson, then the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, presided as Secretary General of the conference. And she was greeted by Cabinet Minister from Host Nation, South Africa's Ronnie Kasrils, a Jewish anti-apartheid veteran well known for his vicious opposition to Israel. In 2006, he said, we must call baby killers baby killers and declare that those using methods reminiscent of the Nazis be told that they are behaving like Nazis. Truly disgusting and disreputable. And here he is back in 2001 at the Durban conference, slating America for not sending a delegation. I think if if the Americans don't come, 
it's not going to be uh, that unexpected. We would very much like them to come. They should be here. There are very many uh, citizens of America who are here, and I think they're extremely angry with their government for again the third time boycotting this conference. And I think that's very wrong indeed that they're not here. And so-called anti-racist, pro-Palestinian and Israeli flag-waving standoffs in public places started right here. Here's an Israel supporter attempting to give a flower to a pro-Palestinian. Come on, man. You are a waste of time. You are... Zionist, man. You're, you're racist. racist. You're a person. Racist. You're a person, and I you don't hate Zionist. you. I don't hate you. I hate you because you're Zionist. I don't hate you because you're Jew. I don't hate you. I have no problem. Are you one? Do you hate Nazis? Do you hate Nazis? You don't hate Nazis. Well, there's nothing to talk about. Then it's easy. Then it's easy for you to be a Zionist if you don't hate Nazis. It's easy for you to be a Zionist if you don't hate Nazis. NGOs are often seen as making the world a better place, and it's big business perceived as ideologically neutral. NGOs are helped along too by journalists doing their bidding, which Professor Steinberg says sets back the day of peace. Almost no journalists make the NGOs the story, but they should because they're very powerful actors. They have a lot of influence on how the uh, world perceives the conflict, but they, they're always immune. And that goes back to what we call the halo effect, this view that these are wonderful people ideologically neutral, politically neutral, that to volunteer to make the world a better place for human rights. Uh, that's just so long been shown to be false, and yet it, it still dominates the, 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 um, the image that we see in the media. So all I can say is everything you said, and more so. He realised at the turn of the millennium that a vigorous response was needed to the activities of the NGOs. He needed a structure, and Hillel Neuer's UN watch was inspiration. I have to be honest, and I hope Hillel will understand if I tell this little secret here. Back again in the early 2003, 2004, NGO Monitor was no longer a one-person operation. I actually had a research assistant and a website. And we got requests to do more research and some funding from all private donors. I used the UN Watch model as the, uh, the template for building NGO Monitor. We are here today to demand what the United Nations Charter promised. In 1945, when the United Nations was created, the UN promised equal rights for all men and women and equal rights for all nations, large and small. But when we come here to the United Nations, when we stand here at the Human Rights Council, and I was just there this morning, we see something that is not consistent with this promise. We look for equal rights, but we see a Human Rights Council that is supposed to speak for victims of the world's worst violations, but instead, as you see on the signs today, there were seven reports. There were zero on Algeria, zero on China, zero on Iraq, zero on Pakistan, zero on Qatar, zero on Russia, zero on Turkey, zero on Venezuela, zero on Zimbabwe, we see that the whole world, the whole world was addressed last week and today Israel alone is criticized for an entire day, the only country in the world 
that is the focus of its own day, its own debate, its own agenda item. Not North Korea, not Syria, not Sudan is treated in this way. And so we're here today not to say that Israel is perfect, it can be criticized, but to say that what is happening here at the United Nations is discrimination. It is inequality. It is a violation of the UN Charter. It's a violation of what the Human Rights Council promised. So all we're asking here is to ask the United Nations to live up to its own promises. And we're here to say enough is enough. We're demanding equal rights and nothing more and nothing less. Professor Gerald Steinberg, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's a pleasure to be welcomed. Thank you. Now, NGO Monitor was founded by you in 2001 to, quote, promote accountability and advance a vigorous discussion on the reports and activities of humanitarian NGOs in the framework of the Arab-Israeli conflict and to end promotion of, quote, politically and ideologically motivated anti-Israel agendas by certain NGOs. Uh, Gerald, how's it going? Well, we're in business for almost 20 years. We haven't won the war yet, but um, I think we're certainly giving a good fight. I can tell by the number of uh, attacks and, and pieces of hate, uh, uh, social media, they call it, or anti-social media statements from all, all the NGOs that are the most active in uh, demonizing Israel, that uh, they don't like the work that we're doing. So we must be putting up a pretty good fight, cut back some of their funding, uh, made some of the uh, European governments aware of damage they're doing under the facade of human rights, but uh, it's going okay. Now, this is a war of attrition in a very modern way. Uh, military conflicts changed agendas, changed history, and changed direction. So these wars of attrition, as you say, they go on for decades. You're winning, but my goodness me, this is a generational battle, it appears, Gerald. It is. This is one of the biggest mistakes of my life that I ended up uh, creating this uh, framework <laughs> called because little did I know that how much, uh, how long I'd be doing this. I thought this was going to be a two or three year project. My background is in strategic studies, international relations, and uh, I, I recognized at some point in 2001 that this was something, these NGOs were really serious sources of power. They made a difference. And, and absolutely, you're right. We are in a post-hard uh, war area and soft war in uh, the, the uh, language of the European Union, soft power. Europe, the EU leaders always talk about the Europe being a soft power foreign policy. So soft power can be very deadly. And I saw that with my own uh, eyes in places that I went to to speak about uh, strategic issues in, in Israel and saw these NGOs handing out literature about how Israel kills babies every day and other ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's evil. This was 20 years ago. And um, I thought that I'd take two or three years and because nobody was doing this in the academic realm at all, uh, writing about that the power, the abuses, the influence of the NGO world. And uh, the more I dug, the deeper it got. And here we are 20 years later almost. And, and the, certainly... The muck is still very much up to our ankles or ears. Now, this really is at the epicenter of what human rights represents to both sides. 
And to me, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the battle against anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, seems a modern-day schism in human rights. So, for example, what Jeremy Corbyn and Shami Chakrabarti and even Keir Starmer in this country might call um, human rights is a very different kind of human rights on the Jewish and Israeli side. I give a course on the history of the politics of human rights and NGOs. And it's a 14-week course. It goes 90 minutes a week. I'm not going to go through all that now unless you have lots of time. I've got 51 minutes left on the hard it's... disk, so um, <laughs> let's abridge yeah. that lecture for now. A very, very short summary. But human rights change was, was really hijacked, and that's, that's the midpoint of the course. I say it every week anyway, but uh, the, the history of the hijacking of human rights is very important here. We, the, the modern era of human rights really starts in the post-Shoah period. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the United Nations in 1948, was clearly a response to the Shoah. It was a form of never again, uh, and the, the, uh, the atrocities of Nazi Germany informed the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the institutions that were created to implement that declaration. It started, the process started relatively slowly. The uh, United Nations uh, had developed what is called now the uh, uh, United Nations uh, Human Rights Council, and a small number of non-governmental organizations, the term NGO was really invented by the United Nations, were given a privileged position in the post-war environment to promote these kinds of values because there was concern that many of the countries, the communist countries, but also in, uh, in Central Europe, not just under the Soviet, uh, behind the Soviet Iron Curtain, but also uh, given the, the weakness of democracy, as was shown in the, the Weimar Republic and Germany and Austria and elsewhere, that NGOs were good, noble institutions that were not part of the political fray, that were not corrupted by politics and money. These were wonderful people, mostly volunteers, and we're going to let them help us implement these universal human rights principles. And that was true for the 1950s in particular. Amnesty International was founded in the, uh, I believe, early 1960s, uh, mainly to campaign for political prisoners. That was a very uh, important implementation of that philosophy. And it goes on, uh, Human Rights Watch in the United States was founded by the late Robert Bernstein in, uh, in a similar kind of framework. And then somewhere in the 80s, the fall of the, uh, the Soviet Union, the, the changes in, in the world, but also the ideological growth of, of the left, the liberal, but even, I would say, ultra-liberal, what's called post-colonial political ideology. The West is responsible for the terrible things that were done uh, in the uh, rest of the world. Capitalism is evil. That ideology gradually first of all through the NGOs, but then later in, in the United Nations and elsewhere, became the dominant uh, political force that spoke for human rights and was allowed to speak for human rights. So essentially what happened was that this whole moral, principled, value-based uh, uh, enterprise or, or endeavor that started after the, the Holocaust with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the Institutions were kidnapped. They were captured by a small, um, I, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn, I, I guess I would say in some, some sense Marxist 
but modern Marxist. So that's where the, the term post-colonial comes in, an anti-Western um, group of very, very strong activists. These people put their entire lives into this, and it turned out that they were able to get money, and I think that's the other critical point. And you begin to see in the late 80s and 90s money going into these institutions and therefore giving them the power. I mentioned Amnesty International, which went from a very small voluntary group of dedicated individuals to a multi, hundreds of millions of pounds a year. The last time that I was able to look at the numbers, something like 250 million pounds a year. They also hide their, their, the details. I won't get into that now, but that's part of the work that we do. Human Rights Watch is around $90 million a year. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. That gives them a lot of power to influence, to shape the public debate and the, the media coverage and the UN activities. All these things led to the capture and very much the damage that was done, almost the destruction of those values of human rights. So that's a long response, but it's less than uh, 14 weeks. And exactly what we wanted to hear in terms of this interview. Thank you for that, Gerald. I wanted to ask you then that opponents of NGO Monitor as a consequence are casting you in a right-wing light. In a sense, they're sort of holding up a mirror to themselves and they're kind of demonstrating that they are the opposite. Uh, And in fact, rather than you and your supporters at NGO Monitor being of the right or even the far right. It's actually that what you're dealing with are are revolutionary forces which are hard left. I'm going to try to get away from the left-right division. I think there are other terms that one can use maybe to illustrate the problem. The the language uh, that we're often accused of trying to silence, uh, silence criticism of Israel silence public debate there i completely agree with you that's the the people that we the organizations that we criticize are the ones who are engaging in the silencing they want to silence what is the only criticism that exists of their own work until ngo monitor was founded and that's why i ended up spending the last 19 20 years of my life on this is that uh before that this is, again, we're talking about the, the, all through the 1990s, 2000, 2001, when you begin to see this critical mass of NGOs creating. They created the BDS movement. They created the lawfare movement in trying to, to use the International Criminal Court to uh, demonize Israelis. They, there was no criticism. They were the darlings of everybody. And when they suddenly realized that they were being criticized, at first, we were uh, ridiculed, and uh, people were told, oh, don't pay any attention to them. They're just a bunch of crazy nuts. We were wonderful. NGOs are wonderful, still wonderful, and, and all these allegations are false. And, and they made a critical mistake. I have emails from the uh, head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, with that kind of sarcastic response back when he thought that he could easily just uh, dismiss us. The fact is that nobody has done this kind of research before. And they don't really know how, the NGOs don't know how to deal with it. What they try to do is, as you rightly pointed out, they try to uh, to, to silence us, to uh, label us in all sorts of false uh, images. We are not a, a left-wing or a right-wing organization. We're based in Israel because NGOs are most active. There's no concentration as intense on any single area of human rights as the way in which Israel is being targeted 
Biden's groups. So they don't really know how to respond to this. They lash out, and it's many of their attacks on us are really laughable. And I encourage people to look at that, look at some of them, uh, whether they're made on Twitter or sometimes on Facebook or, or uh, in publications presented to parliaments. Uh, it, it's really the accusations are, are laughable. And um, I think anybody who's I've had some interesting conversations with, with diplomats where they've said, well, this organization say, says you're part of the Israeli government, you're part of a secret right wing conspiracy. And when I show them the details, it, which we are very careful to make sure are very public, we don't take money from any government, including the Israeli government. We're not supported by uh, all sorts of various uh, far right movements. And we're careful about that, too. So they they are often shown to be inaccurate is a very mild term. And, and not only what they're saying about Israel, but also what they're saying about us. And I think that doesn't help their cause at all. You've reportedly worked for the Israeli Foreign Ministry in the office of the Prime Minister while heading NGO Monitor. And it seems the information you gather is a form of defense intelligence for the Israeli government. That is also true, isn't it, Gerald, that you do have an association with the Israeli government? Well, I know many, many academics around the world, including in Israel, who are consultants. I've never worked for the Israeli government in any kind of official position. I have, on occasion, been a consultant, a formal consultant in one or two cases many years ago. Actually, not on NGO-related issues. This was in my formal life of uh, dealing with nuclear arms control. And I do participate as other heads of organizations, other ac academics, as an expert in various roundtables that the government offices put together. But uh, the, the idea that somehow I'm a, a secret agent working for the Israeli government is also ludicrous. Invented. They took on my CV, the, the section that says consultant, and turned it into far more than it is. If I was an uh, employee, I would have uh, put that out there. But I've been careful not to do that. Um, and our information... There are 20 people working for NGO Monitor, 22, actually, and most of whom are researchers. We have people who uh, speak different languages and, and focus on the NGO campaigns and funding of Germany and France and Belgium and the UK, other places. So this is not a one-man operation. We publish all of our material. We have an extensive database. Anybody, and I make that very clear, it's all public. And the Israeli government is welcome to use it as much as the British government. And I do speak to members of the British government. Nobody's ever accused me of being a secret agent of the British government, but they're welcome to do that if they want. <laughs> I speak to, to, to ambassadors uh, for many different countries and speak in parliaments, Canada. I speak in the U.S. Congress, etc. So this is all part of this um, attempt to discredit the work that we do. Yes, the Israeli government uses the material that we, the research that we are, uh, that we find. Frankly, I would be very happy if other organizations would be able to do the research that we do. I'm often asked, well, why don't you expand the work that you're doing for other issues, other countries? It's a full-time job just to do the ones that we're looking at here. But I think it's, there's nothing secret about it. It just means digging down deep and reporting what's said and why it's wrong and who funds it the funders are critical. That's one of the main contributions of NGO Monitor. If a government, let's say the British government through the DFID, the Department for International Development, gives uh, 2 million or 3 million pounds a year to something called the Norwegian Refugee Council, and that money is used 
in various ways to uh, advocate against Israeli government policies, uh, often going through other NGOs in secret ways. And we publish that information because it is available on the Norwegian government uh, website. And it's not that hard to use Google Translate or find somebody in Norway to translate. That's not being a secret agent. That's not providing uh, secret intelligence. It's doing research. And that's what I am as a researcher and academic. Now, there have been some very significant wins after two decades of lobbying, particularly among EU countries funding terrorism with their grants to Palestinian NGOs. The truth is getting closer to a wider audience now that these grants coming out of our tax dollar, pound, euro, is going directly to agencies who then pay other people who are specifically involved in educating youngsters in the ways of terrorism. And big victories are now beginning to happen thanks to NGO Monitor. Well, thanks. Those are very kind words. And I think it's worthwhile looking at how this came about. It's as much the negligence, the blindness of the officials that are handing out the money as it is the, our, our ability to uh, uncover that information. It's not secret. It's, uh, I have to say that as we began to see little bits and pieces, like when you're digging in the garden and you're uncovering roots and you see something that looks strange and doesn't belong there and you pull on it and the more you pull, the bigger it gets and, and the, the more frightening it gets. Uh, NGO Monitor has a database of over 200 organizations that we cover that we write about that we investigate that we publish on and this grew obviously it didn't over the years we've added a few each year and one of the strangest aspects of this was a number of years ago we began to see a few organizations where these are palestinian groups mainly that have all of the uh, the sounds and lights that go along with a human rights ngo organizations that like calls itself uh, Defense for Children International hyphen Palestine, which is part of a network of organizations around the world called Defense for Children International. And Defense for Children International mostly does what it says it sets out to do. It tries to defend children who are caught up particularly in war areas. But the Palestine group was very unusual in many ways. Uh, in, in it, it's, its constitutional structure was sort of in, but not really under the wings of the D.C., of the over-global group. And then we began to see that they, they, were, they were getting money. They had U.N. status, ECOSOC status, it's called. Uh, they were able to walk in and out of the U.N. building and speak and hold side events. They got money from mainly from European governments, including the EU. Yes, you're, in those days, pre-Brexit, your taxpayer money. But many of their officials, these are Palestinians, had terrorist backgrounds. And that, we started off with one, one name that rang a bell because there was an individual who was uh, held by the Israeli government, tried, and uh, was later released, but was unable to travel. Long story, uh, it was still considered to be too close to the Palestinian Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP. So we looked at one organization, and we noticed that this was something strange, a human rights organization with all the 
privileges of being uh, in the UN framework and speaking in the UN and defending children was had some people had one individual who was linked to the PFLP to make it cut to the chase. We now have eight organizations that are connected to the PFLP with, I believe, over 70 board members, officials, employees of these organizations. Apparently, I say this with almost certainty, I'm waiting for one of our researchers to give me a final report, but I believe that we have enough evidence to show that in the 1990s, this is a theory that we now think we can demonstrate. The PFLP realized, well, I'll use this in a non-diplomatic term, uh, the naivete, the gullibility Mm -hmm. of diplomats and other officials who hand out money and who give the uh, imprimatur of being a human rights organization. They didn't bother to do a background check to see who they were dealing with. And so they, in in the late 1980s, established this network which is all related to the PFLP, gives them access, gives them, which access means ability to recruit, give them funding because most of these groups sign up for and get their grants of half a million or a million euros every year, and nobody looked at the details. I have to say that the European officials, when we present this information, one after another, I remember speaking in the Swiss parliament, and we showed them the data, their own data, and showed them how the money was going to organizations that had this clear PFLP link. And I'm I'm not sure I could use the term, they fell off their chairs, but they got very excited. Some said, no, this can't be. And some said, we need to have an investigation. It took about a year and they cut off the money. And then there were four or five governments that were doing the same thing, similar reactions. So had they done their homework, had they looked at to see who they were giving money to, we wouldn't have had to do it. They wouldn't have been embarrassed to have this come out in Parliament, in the newspapers, and being forced to shut down that funding. It is startling to me that once one government falls over and admits that they've made a terrible mistake out of naivety, that the dominoes don't fall elsewhere, that you actually have to take the case around the rest of Europe to do this. Gerald, does that surprise you? Because for me, it's it's disconnected. It's as though there's not the political will or a shrug of the shoulders um, from other governments, like our own here in Britain. I have to re-emphasize this is a big business. It's really an industry. With billions flowing, uh, I don't remember what the total British government funding for humanitarian aid and, and human rights and NGOs but it's a considerable amount of money every year. Well, the year. commitment to UNRWA is £65.5 million. Pounds, uh, okay, is, that's... Which is why uh, Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Fleur Hassan Nahum, was part of a delegation coming here to urge Britain to stop that. And, of course, we have a Home Secretary in the form of Priti Patel who really supports the, uh, the British case to cut off terror funding such as this. It's amazing. It's because... You, you talked about UNRWA, which I would go back to our previous conversation. That's within more within the, uh, the realm of a UN Watch and Hillel Neuer. It's a UN-funded framework where NGOs play a minimal role. But that's parallel. So, so you have money going to UNRWA and money going to something called the United Nations Office for uh, the Commissioner of Humanitarian Affairs, which has a massive office 
that with a massive budget, which is, I would be surprised if the British government gave less to, to that than they give to UNRWA. And then they have the NGO funding. All this is in parallel, all run by a different individual usually. And they don't, either they don't speak to each other or they just have so much money they have to give away that they don't even bother to look at the details. You said that you were surprised, and one should be surprised, uh, that governments don't learn the lesson when they see what happens in another government. But I think that that's, that also is part of the problem. Swiss didn't announce that they're stopping funding for this group of NGOs and the uh, framework that was established to, to give them their, I think it was on this list, uh, each government paid over a million uh, euros, Swiss franc, almost the same amount every year. The Swiss cut off the money quietly. They didn't tell anybody. They were embarrassed. Then the other governments, we had to go and show the government, other governments. And then, in fact, they did speak to each other. And it was easier with each government cutting it off the next one. But it wasn't automatic at all because it was all done uh, very quietly, again, because of the embarrassment factor. I think what's happening in Britain now, well, what's in, in the age of Corona, it's very hard to predict anything. But even before that, uh, the... Uh, certainly the Tory government would have been very different if Corbyn had been prime minister, I think, and we would have all been bashing our heads into the walls. But the Tories, and Priti Patel certainly knows about it, but others as well, who have served in different positions. Alistair Burt, who had that position a few years ago, not, had the position of being head of the, the DFID, uh, among other positions. And Michael Gove and others, they realize uh, the amount of waste and the need for fundamentally changing the way the process works uh, in, in giving out aid. But it's such a strong lobby. It's very difficult. You end up with very, very nasty fights in parliament and uh, all sorts of uh, under the table dealings efforts because there's so much money involved. Uh, it's, it's very hard to turn off the tap. I think it, now the British have already done a good job. Uh, even in, in uh, over the last five years, over a series of different prime ministers, the uh, and, and Theresa May was very good on this issue, as were the ministers that were in charge of these budgets. The funding from the UK went down, and of course, with Brexit, it's no longer Europe is no longer your problem. Uh, Europe is much harder in that sense to push back, and, and the British are not completely clean. I mentioned the funding that still goes to the Norwegian Refugee Council which I have to admit for the life of me, I don't understand. Why should British taxpayers provide, I don't remember, it's two or three million pounds a year to a Norwegian NGO, which is entirely politicized. What it, it, If you want to do something like that, then the British government has plenty of ways of, of having influence uh, in its policies in, in Israel and the Palestinian issue. It certainly doesn't have to go through uh, a Norwegian group, which is uh, largely politically counter to the uh, philosophy of the current government. And I've raised this with uh, Lord Pickles recently, and also some of the anti-Semitism that goes on in that framework is quite blatant. So I think that uh, there are changes that we can expect. Indeed, and of course, with the coronavirus uh, problem going on right across the world, I guess there will be additional pressures upon governments to act in isolationist Form, particularly in this country with Brexit having been delivered. I guess the central argument must be that funding such NGOs puts back the day of peace 
one further day. But a very current battle surrounds the UN, um, publishing its database of all business enterprises that it claims contributed to, quote, human rights concerns and ordered by the UN Human Rights Council. And frankly, it bolsters BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions. Uh, and it singles out Israel. And this kind of reminds me of Nazis in Europe writing Yuda on shops and saying, this is a Jewish business, go next door and deal with the non-Jewish business instead. It's a, it's uh, a, it's a breach yes. of the IHRA definition. It certainly violates blatantly the IHRA, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, working definition of anti-Semitism. That is not particularly strong in the UN. Let me emphasize the role of these same NGOs. There's so many different aspects to this blacklist. But I want to emphasize, because that's where my expertise comes in, or the expertise of my colleagues at at NGO Monitor. It is a BDS list. There's no question about it. Boycotts, it, it is a form of boycott. It's also like the Arab boycott against Israel that uh, was uh, carried through all the way to the 1970s even. They had a boycott in Damascus. The BDS movement began not, as it sometimes is a fictitious version that Omar Barghouti, a Palestinian, established in 2004. That's nonsense. 2001, what was then called the uh, United Nations uh, Commission on Human Rights, led by the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, held this wonderful conference in 2001 in Durban, South Africa, to mark, to celebrate the end of apartheid and to mark the beginning of a major effort. This is, I don't know if you can hear the sarcasm in the voice, but this was going to be the, they called themselves, the conference was to create a program for the complete elimination of racial discrimination, xenophobia, and other forms of something or other in there. Uh, racism, discrimination. And part of that, the main part of that activity, they had three three different parallel conferences, was an NGO forum. The NGO forum was where the language of the BDS movement was first created and where it began. Among the most active organizations was a group called Human Rights Watch, which was founded by Robert Bernstein, in uh, the 1970s, in the midst of the Cold War, to fight for human rights in closed societies. Nothing to do with Israeli-Palestinian Middle East issues. But they became, because of the obsession of the head of human rights, Ken Roth, uh, I'm not a psychologist, I don't claim to know what drives his very deep hostility towards Israel, but the Human Rights Watch delegation, along with Amnesty and, and some Palestinian groups, promoted the BDS movement from the Durban conference. And one of their goals, their primary goal, was to get the United Nations to become part of the BDS movement. This blacklist didn't come out of nowhere. They've been working at it for years. About four years ago, I believe, the uh, UN, they finally got the Human Rights Council to uh, authorize the, uh, yes, it was in 2016, exactly three, four years ago, to authorize the uh this creation of this blacklist for four years it was delayed and ngo monitor had a role in that because we wrote about the the ngos drove this they provided the information the claims that that these are organized they provided the legal rationale which is invented international law that businesses had an obligation not to function 
and provide services when the opposite is the case in territories occupied uh, pending a peace agreement. All of those things drove this process. The new Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, Michel Bachelet, caved in to the pressure or perhaps uh, was part of the movement, but since it's more a matter of she just buckled. She's very close to Human Rights Watch and Ken Roth. Uh, Ken Roth did a number of visits and uh, apparently convinced her, twisted her arm, whatever it was, and we came out with this, uh, this ridiculous blacklist. So this is very much of an NGO initiative that shows you exactly how much power the NGOs have in the UN process, uh, and it's an expression of their anti-Semitism as I said, particularly of Human Rights Watch, of Ken Roth. It's interesting, shortly afterwards, uh, Roth was shown to be a liar by his own people. He went to, he, uh, his uh, head of Middle East and, and North African affairs, Sarah Lee Whitson, went to um, Saudi Arabia in 2009 to raise money to campaign for the Goldstone Report. You may remember that that was a very important Indeed. brick in the building of the uh, BDS movement. And uh, they said they never got any money from the Saudis. Well, uh, and internal documents were released uh, in January showing they got at least one donation, and I suspect there are more, from a uh, Saudi billionaire who uh, mistreated his employees and created conditions which no self-respecting human rights organization would have accepted. They took the money, almost half a million dollars. And so this is, uh, it just shows you how corrupt the leaders of this movement are and very much... Uh, how easily they were able to uh, manipulate governments and uh, the UN in particular. That was then, but this is now with Saudi Arabia. Gerald, can I ask you, with the growing understanding and political uh, partnership that there might be with the Sunni world, and in particular Saudi Arabia, um, has the temperature changed with regard to Saudi and anti-Israel and anti-Semitic activity like this? I think an honest answer is no. The Saudis, there, there's a lot of uh, traffic back and forth in a positive way between Saudi Arabia and Israel, lots of rumors. But in UN frameworks, in funding, approving the funding for these organizations, some of which gets channeled through the UN, the Saudis are very influential in the largest single coherent group in, in that context called the uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, and they always unanimously support the uh, UN activities, which end up, uh, whether it's in the Human Rights Council or in uh, uh, UNRWA or in what's called the Committee for the Inalienable Rights of the uh, Palestinian People, which is... Um, one of the main NGO UN frameworks that promotes anti-Semitism and discrimination against Israel. So the Saudis still play that game. And uh, I think it's one, it'll be one of the last changes that are going to take place because it's it doesn't affect their interests directly. They're interested, in, as you said, in uh, alliance with Israel, cooperation with Israel against the, uh, uh, the Shia forces led by Iran. The political warfare, the soft power warfare that goes on through NGOs and through the UN are, are uh, very much below the radar. It, it's going to take a lot more to get them to stop being part of that process. And so because of this uh, multi-channel communication, there is an enormous media echo chamber. One of the reasons why Johnny Gould's Jewish State exists is 
I am about for those who listen and for those who are willing to listen. There is an anti-Israel column of journalists who operate in a clique of NGO and journalistic crossover, but their words are powerful, as we've hinted on. Uh, journalist and author Philip Gurevich, he wrote about 10 years ago that he was struck by the ethical grey zone of ties between reporters and mm -hmm. NGOs. And Matty Friedman complained in 2014, too often the press represents humanitarians with unquestioning admiration. He said this in The New Yorker. Why not seek to keep them honest? Why should our coverage of them look so much like their own self-representation in fundraising appeals? Why should we, as many photojournalists and print reporters do, work for humanitarian agencies between journalistic jobs, helping with their official reports and institutional appeals in a way that we would never consider doing for corporations or political parties, government agencies, etc.? Is this... The challenge, Gerald, today to our notions of liberal democracy. There's a lot packed into what you just said. I'm going to take a few of those strands and try to give a um, coherent response. Because there's so much that can be said. First of all, you have definitely highlighted another dimension of this complex world of NGOs, and that is the close relationship between so much of the journalistic world, the media world, and the NGOs. The journalists rely on the NGOs for material. So often we're going to see just word for word in NGO press release, and you said it, uh, that, that becomes the, the, the content of a headline story, whether it's in The Guardian, The Independent, The, the Times, The New York Times, and I can go through the whole list. They're all very similar. And some people say that's because journalists are, are lazy. But it's also, there's an ideological affinity. NGOs tell journalists what they expect to hear anyway. So if, if journalists see Israel as the guilty party, the powerful party that is responsible for the suffering of the Palestinians, what we call the victimization narrative, the journalists will immediately see the NGO amplification of that story as a form of truth. Why would you question a report by Amnesty International that says that Israel is depriving the Palestinians of health care. And I will add in parenthesis in that amnesty report, you will not see a word about terror tunnels built from uh, humanitarian aid bags of concrete. Why would a journalist question if he or she already agrees with the ideology, then the facts that the, the claims of facts that the NGO presents in these pseudo reports that they churn out every month, we automatically become news headlines, and we've seen that time after time after time after time. What Matty Friedman and Philip Gurevich and a few others have done is come out against that, uh, I think, uh, quite bravely. A lot more has to be done. Journalists need to examine independently, and I, I find that so frustrating that we sit with journalists, you explain this, you give them examples, and they keep doing exactly what they did before without bothering to question the NGOs. I think uh, Matty Friedman said that no journalists, almost no journalists, make the NGOs the story, but they should because they're very powerful actors. They have a lot of influence on how the uh, world perceives the conflict, but they, they're always immune. And that goes back to what we call the halo effect, this view that these are wonderful people ideologically neutral 
politically neutral, but to volunteer to make the world a better place for human rights. Uh, That's just so long been shown to be false, and yet it it still dominates the, 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 um, the image that we see in the media. So all I can say is everything you said and more so. There were not as many, nearly as many organizations as there are now. And that was the model. That was the gold standard. So it's a, um, I think it's it's honor for me always to work with UN Washington, with LL. And you're right. He's based in Geneva. Uh, he is the uh, the go-to person on UN-related issues. And it, it, what happened back again, I go back to that period, there was UN Watch doing UN um, research and naming and shaming is the best term that when, when they would go far away from their um, proclaimed principles to to uh, demonize Israel. At the time, there was a camera and shortly afterwards, honest reporting that examined media distortions and, and uh, propaganda against Israel. And I realized that the NGO part of it was missing. So that's why uh, UN Watch was our model. And uh, it's very important that everybody, every organization does what it does best. We don't do UN issues other than when uh, NGOs are involved. And unfortunately, that's a pretty common process. But in everything the UN does related to Israel, there are NGOs involved. We do the UN aspect of it. And uh, UN Watch does the, uh, we do the NGO aspect and they do the UN aspect. And it fills in the the puzzle pretty well. Indeed, I'm very, very proud to say that uh, working with Hillel Neuer at the Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy is on my CV as I interviewed the Yazidi uh, rape victim, um, Farida Khalaf, on stage in 2018. I saw that, and uh, I think that is definitely something to be emphasized. Uh, I've been to some of the Geneva summits. They are an alternative to what the UN was supposed to be what it should have done in the UN Human Rights Council, what they don't do because of the political and economic or financial corruption. And Hillel's and the Geneva Summit is a alter- very important alternative. Like a parallel world. Uh, Gerald, let's talk a little bit about yourself now. Now, despite the accent, uh, you are one of us, aren't you? You were born here yes. in the United Kingdom. You caught me. Oh, I say, uh, we'll have to start some elocution lessons. What happened to your accent? Now, you completed a joint bachelor's degree in physics uh, in Near Eastern Studies at the University of California. That's possibly where the accent has been evolved in 1973. And then a master's degree in physics uh, in San Diego in 75. And then you began teaching at the Bar Ilan University in 1982, a professor of political science. So you never came back here, Gerald? Well, I didn't come back to stay. I came back to visit quite frequently. And, uh, well, when I was two years old, my parents decided that in the uh, early 50s, being raised in California was a little bit warmer, sunnier than being in in, uh, London. So that was their decision. They didn't ask me. So I was raised in California. And I did my uh, university studies in uh, originally in physics. And it turned out that I had spent a year in Israel accumulated enough uh, for that and a few other things. I always had this, uh, in Hebrew, we said, I wanted to do something that was, I found, uh, pol- I always had the political bug in me. So I did the Middle Eastern Studies aspect uh, as a side show, not, not really as a hobby, not as a major issue. And I spent, the, the transition was gradual. Those were different times where worrying about a job and an income was not uh, particularly high on the agenda. Uh, graduate school was f- basically free. 
I did a doctorate at uh, in the middle of my physics doctorate. Uh, I went. I was asked if I was interested in a fellowship to go to uh, the East Coast, and there's personal issues involved in that too. There are a lot more Jews in, in New York than there are in uh, San Diego, California, in the 1970s, and I decided that was a better place for me to uh, anchor myself. So I went to uh, Cornell University initially uh, as a one-year fellowship in uh, international politics and um, science and technology. I did a lot of work in nuclear proliferation research about, uh, which related eventually to what Iran and Iraq and other countries are doing, building illicit nuclear weapons. I became a consultant to the American government, something nobody has accused me of doing for a while uh, on nuclear proliferation areas. But that eventually led me into the, then I came to Israel. I'd always wanted to make Aliyah and uh, made that, did that in, uh, I spent 10 years bouncing back and forth, 11 years, made Aliyah in 1982 and have been teaching at Bar Ilan in, uh, since then, teaching international politics. And the, the NGO emphasis came much later after 20 years of doing the nuclear and, and space and other high-tech-related international politics. So I've had the, really the, the privilege of doing what I want to do and when my interests change, being able to do that. Finally, Gerald, can I ask you about your forecast for this incredibly long war of attrition? You didn't think that uh, 20 years after you set up NGO Monitor that you would still be doing this, and it is indeed a lifetime's work, but not without great achievement, not without uh, changing perceptions and indeed policies. With coronavirus, with isolationism, with Brexit, with the challenge to the European Union, existentially with so many European peoples looking at the European Union, for example in Italy at the moment, a real resistance against Europe, and the potential for Russia and China to be aiding European countries during this time. Um, Can I ask you how you think this will shape our world in the future. Will you or your successor still be doing the same things in 20 years' time? Or will there be some sort of victory in this very painful war of attrition? I'm always often accused of uh, being a two-handed academic on the one hand, on the other hand, giving all these answers that are... And I'm going to do that now to you. I'll give you an optimistic and a pessimistic uh, Image. I don't have a crystal ball, and I, uh, I have, as they say, it's enough trouble understanding the past. Going to the future is even more complicated. <laughs> On the one hand, this is there are a lot of changes that are taking place, and they were already starting to take place as taxpayers and, and governments recognize slowly and with pain and painfully how much money was being wasted on. These types of campaigns, the, all the Western European governments, almost all of them, from Finland in the north down to Spain even in the south, Greece is an exception, even Italy, provided on the order of two $250 million for humanitarian aid and human rights and democracy building. It was part of the religion of post-war Western Europe. And civil society was the the darling that was going to implement it for all the reasons that I explained at the beginning, because they're outside of politics, they're volunteers, they're wonderful people. 
that it had become a big business with massive salaries for the people who ran them was something that was largely ignored. If this is, if the faith in this is shaken for the reasons that you pointed to, if it is now clear the money is needed for health, fighting corona, for things inside the boundaries of each country and of the EU, then perhaps we will see a change for the better, more responsible behavior. It's also linked to the way in which the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is perceived. We've spoken in generalities, but all my examples have been been Israeli-Palestinian examples. Uh, The NGO world is obsessed with Israel, as, as is the media, as is the UN, for all the same reasons. So if you look at the distribution, I remember giving a briefing in, in the, par, in the uh, European uh, Commission, rather, in Brussels, on their funding, showing the European commissioners where their NGO funding was going and showing them how much more money went to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict than any other human rights issue, quasi or real, in the world. And they said, one of the, the members said, this can't be right, you must be inventing these, this data. If this current crisis of corona and the crisis of the un of the eu itself leads to some critical rethinking of the budget we may see this part of the uh, activity decline i don't think it's going to be shut off i don't want to speak for 20 years but i think even in 10 years there may be less money going into it it may be a little done a little more responsibly but i would be surprised if it ends and and the question then gets back to the israeli-palestinian conflict is this still going to be the obsession of so many diplomats and government officials and journalists and the idea they're going to solve this problem and the way to solve it is to throw money at, at NGOs that claim to be promoting peace and human rights and democracy and, and humanitarian aid and do it blindly as has been done in Europe. That's the pessimistic, pers- or, well, I'm not sure the op- optimistic or the pessimistic. Pessimistic perspective is that this is so deeply entrenched that it will continue. The optimistic perspective is that it is so counterproductive, so wasteful. I often ask European officials, you've been in charge of, or you're on your term in office, you have distributed 500 million euros, of picking a number, to uh, NGOs, of which maybe a um, quarter has gone to Israeli-Palestinian groups. What have you achieved? I have never had any... European official be able to answer that question. Usually they'll say, well, I'll have to get back to you. I'll have to ask my people what, what we've accomplished. But there's never any. What have they achieved? There's no peace. Certainly the Palestinians are no closer to human rights than they were 20 years ago. They're killing and oppressing their own people. There is no progress towards a viable Palestinian economy despite all the aid. So what have they achieved? If the idea they now are able to look at that question seriously and reach the conclusions that should be obvious, then maybe in 10 years from now, we will see a fundamental change. But I don't go into this optimistically. I I think the best one can say it's uh, neutral, 50-50. Professor Gerald Steinberg, thank you very much indeed for joining me today on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And I thank you for asking tough questions and hopefully giving me the opportunity to provide some serious answers. So thank you. And keep doing what you're doing. My sincere thanks to Professor Gerald Steinberg, founder of NGO Monitor, and to Itai Ruveni and Nitsa Flus for making all of this possible in the first place. 
scroll down my other episodes, you'll find something of great interest. Until next time, this is Johnny Gould, and this is my Jewish State.